to Grace here at the Medina East Campus. Super glad to have you here uh, in the room. And if you're watching on a live stream as well, just want to say a special hi to you. And uh, man, so awesome to see uh, Daniel just uh, make the step of faith and baptism uh, to get baptized. So encouraged by that. And uh, just want to kind of remind everyone who's here today, you know, like Colin said, I know uh, different people are in different places in their spiritual journey, uh, but if you are in a spot where you have um, kind of made a decision to follow Jesus, if you have done that recently, or if you are a person who's been investigating Christ, but maybe over the past several weeks, um, you have kind of internally made a commitment that you want to follow Jesus, I just want to help you and let you know that your next step of obedience to Christ, your first step of obedience to Christ, is to get baptized. And uh, like we talked about, baptism is just an outward expression of that inward reality, that inward reality of a, of a decision to follow Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're a person who is a follower of Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, I would encourage you to take that step. Uh, we do that on the weekend services. We also do that in our life groups as well. And so if you want some more information about getting baptized, um, you can uh, let us know about that on the Connect cards or on our website. You can reach out to us, and we would be happy to get you connected that way. So very, very excited for that. Very excited for Daniel. Can we just give uh, him another round of applause? Just that was awesome to be able to get together. So very cool celebrate that. <clears throat> but if you, are, uh, if you are a guest with us here today, I do just want to extend a very, very special welcome to you. You're actually catching us in the fourth week of a series that we've been in together. That's called Living in Exile. And uh, what we're doing is we're actually going through this incredible Old Testament book that's also called Daniel. And so kind of looking at this book of the Bible together, and uh, we're just kind of taking it chapter by chapter. So each week, uh, we're looking at the next chapter in this story, the story of Daniel. And that means that today, being the fourth week, that we are going to be in Daniel chapter, you guessed it, chapter four. Okay, so if you got your Bibles, uh, why don't we just go ahead and get right into it. I want to invite you to open with me to Daniel chapter four. And uh, just also will tell you that if you did not bring a Bible with you, or if you need to use one of our Bibles, you can feel free to do that. So page 722 in the Bibles that are under the chairs is where you're going to find Daniel chapter four. And let me just mention, if you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have one. And so you can just take one of ours from under the chairs, make that a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have that. So Daniel four. Now, as you're getting there, uh, let me just kind of orient you to the conversation that we've been having over the past few weeks. So why are we looking at the book of Daniel? Well, well here's what we said. We said that uh, even though this book 
uh, in your Old Testament, which was written 2,600 years ago. It's written nearly 2,600 years ago. We said that this book and the contents of the book of Daniel are deeply relevant to the time and place that we find ourselves in today. And you might be asking, well, how so? Well, here's what we've kind of discovered over the past few weeks. Uh, we said that the book of Daniel was written in uh, really the midst of a very uncertain and a very turbulent time in the history of the Israelites. And so if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament of the Bible, the Old Testament basically recounts the story of God's people, the Israelites. And when you get to Daniel, what you're going to find is it is a very uncertain and it is a very turbulent moment in their history. And so basically what happened was this. At the very beginning of Daniel, you're going to find that the nation of Israel has been defeated uh, by the world power at that time called the Babylonians. And then after they're defeated, uh, we're actually told that the Babylonians, they took the Israelites and they took them out of their home country and then they exiled them and they assimilated them into Babylon. So what that meant was it meant that now God's people were living in a foreign place uh, where they spoke a foreign language, where they had an entirely foreign set of customs and values. Many of those customs and values were totally antithetical to the faith of God's people. And so they were trying to figure out what does it look like to, resist, to, to live out a resolved commitment to God in the midst of a society where things are ever-changing and where there's pressure to compromise in so many different ways. We said on top of that, what you also see in the book of Daniel is that you have this crazy bipolar king who's in charge. And we said that when you look at this king, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know about Nebuchadnezzar. We said when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, what he's doing is unpredictable. He's oftentimes issuing decrees and demands and demanding things that in some ways is, uh, is, is really calling God's people to compromise from different places of faith and conviction. And so what you're going to see in the book of Daniel is in the midst of such a time of unpredictability and uncertainty, you're going to see Daniel and his friends just remain resolved in their steadfast faith and their commitment to God. And the way that they do it, we said, is actually they stand out in a really unique way, in a really unique way. And this is just as a way of review. We said, when you look at Daniel and you look at his friends in, in the book of Daniel, you're going to see that while they were in Babylon, that they didn't retaliate, that the way that Daniel and his friends stood out is they didn't retaliate. They didn't fight back. They didn't try to, you know, they didn't try to rebel and overcome Babylon. You don't see that. They also, they didn't assimilate. They didn't just go with the flow and blend into culture and just act like everyone else around them. They didn't just assimilate, nor did they isolate. Daniel and his friends didn't just check out and decide that they were just going to not participate in what was happening in Babylon and just move to the country and just you know, kind of live life that way. They didn't do that either. What they did, what we're going to see in the book of Daniel, is they actually illuminated. They stood out in Babylon. They, in a lot of ways, you can say it's almost like they were shining in Babylon. And that's what you see within. The question is, how do they do that? How do they do that? And we believe that what you see in the book of Daniel is very instructive, specifically for those who follow Jesus. And I know not everybody here today follows Christ, but for those of us who follow Jesus, we find ourselves sometimes asking the same question, right? How do you live out a resolved faith? How do you, re how do you live out a resolved conviction of the things that we see in scripture while living in an ever-changing and oftentimes kind of uncertain cultural moment like we find ourselves in today. And so that's why we're looking at Daniel here together. You might remember if you've been with us, we've introduced you to a prayer. This prayer has really in a lot of ways sort of served as the outline of this series. And the prayer goes like this. We've been saying, Father in heaven, 
by your power and grace, help me to be resolved. Help me to be resolved to pray as a first response and not a last resort. Help me to be resolved to love and obey you no matter the outcome. Resolve to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty. Resolve to walk humbly in an age of pride and resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. And we said that this prayer really, in a lot of ways, it outlines the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, which is what we're looking at over, the first, over these six weeks. But our hope is that this prayer wouldn't just simply be an outline for the series. Our hope is that this prayer would be the collective heartbeat and maybe even the collective posture of the people of God here at our church. So each week, we're talking through each one of these. And today, what I want to do is, I, I think in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see this idea of being resolved to trust God's sovereignty in times of uncertainty. Resolved to trust God's sovereignty in times of uncertainty. I actually believe that the main theme of Daniel chapter 4 is all about God's sovereignty. It's all about God's sovereignty. And how God's sovereignty gives us rest, and it gives us trust, and it gives us confidence, even in the midst of uncertainty. So let me kind of show you how that pans out here in Daniel chapter 4. We're actually going to start in verse 4. So uh, the reason we're going to start in verse 4 is because at the end, I actually want to come back and look at verses 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see why here at the end. But let's start in verse 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. Here's what it says. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, and I was contented, and I was prosperous. All right, so let's just go ahead and pause there for a second. So you're going to notice at the opening of chapter four, uh, we are reintroduced once again to this key character, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that Nebuchadnezzar has appeared in every chapter of the book of Daniel. He was the king of Babylon. But here's what I want you to notice about this chapter. Chapter four is very unique. And the reason it's unique is because, do you notice that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is writing this chapter? Now, this is crazy. I think this is so cool. There is a chapter in your Bible that is written by this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And today, we have the great privilege of reading this chapter that he wrote in our Bibles. And so Nebuchadnezzar is writing this. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, I was at home. I was in my palace. I was contented, and I was prosperous. So he's going to tell us about an event that happened in his life. But he begins by telling us that he was in his palace, and he was contented, and he was prosperous. Now, let me just say this. We actually don't know, if you've been with us in this series over the past few weeks, we actually don't know how much time elapses from one chapter to the next in the book of Daniel. But here's what we do know. We know that when Daniel starts, Daniel is a teenager in chapter one. And by the time the book of Daniel ends, he is an elderly man. And so chances are good that there are giant swaths of time that elapse between each chapter. And I believe that there's actually some great indication in the text itself that at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's career, that he was nearing or he was at the pinnacle of his power. And the reason that's important is because I want you to understand that Nebuchadnezzar at the pinnacle of his power, um, he would have experienced a level of power and a level of influence uh, that very, very few humans have ever experienced in the history of the world. Um, get this, historians estimate that no more than five people in all of human history, five, you can count them on one hand, no more than five people in human history have had the kind of power and status that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so you're talking about a seriously powerful and successful dude. At the pinnacle of his power, we actually are told that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated all of the neighboring nations and kingdoms. And so basically he experienced world dominance as far as he kind of understood. And so the Bible is going to tell us here, notice, that he was contented and he was prosperous. 
contented, probably because there was no one else to conquer, prosperous, probably because he didn't have any enemies at this time. And then I also want you to notice, Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell us, that on top of all of this, that he was at his palace. He was at his palace. Now, why is that significant? Well, I want you to just get this setting in your mind. Okay, where was Nebuchadnezzar's palace? Nebuchadnezzar's palace was in the great city of Babylon. And if you know anything about Babylon, this is actually what Nebuchadnezzar is most well known for. Nebuchadnezzar was definitely known for his military success. But even more than that, what Nebuchadnezzar was most known for was his incredible building projects. Uh, Even to this day, archaeologists are still discovering some of the magnificent things that this this guy was a a master architect and builder. Uh, In fact, uh, one commentator I was reading, his name is um, John Walton. He was just talking about uh, some of of what uh, Babylon would have looked like. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar carried out major building works in Babylon. The Euphrates was channeled into a number of canals passing through the city. So this is an artist rendition of what that would have looked like, but it was a massive city. Um, There was over 50 temples that were built within this city, all built by Nebuchadnezzar uh, to the different Babylonian gods of that time. Uh, It actually included in the city was a museum of antiquities that would have been in there as well. Uh, John Walton goes on, he says this, he says, he built a luxurious palace with its hanging terraced gardens, which became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some of you guys have heard of that before, the hanging gardens of Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. That was him who did that. The hanging gardens actually would have been one of the earliest recorded forms of air conditioning. I think that's kind of fascinating. And then, I think this is kind of cool too, he embellished the major streets, especially the great procession way, along with the images of his God were drawn at festivals. And so there was this procession way that led to the city, and it led to a very famous gate that's called the Ishtar Gate. And all I'm saying is all of these and many, many more were the works of Nebuchadnezzar. And so at the beginning of this chapter, you're going to see that he's at his palace. So you get the setting in your mind, right? He's probably at the hanging gardens, and he's contented, and he's prosperous. And then this is what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar says, I had a dream. and made me afraid. And I was lying in my bed, and the images and the visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And so when the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. So he has this dream, and this is a dream that totally terrifies him. And so he calls together all of the wise men. He calls together all of the astrologers and magicians and enchanters And he asked them to interpret the dream for him. If you were with us in this series, this is very reminiscent of what happened in chapter two. And the Bible says that they can't interpret it for him. And so what does he do? Well, he does actually the same thing he did in chapter two. And so look what happens. He says, finally, Daniel came into my presence and he told me his dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Now, I want you to remember here that this account is being told from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. And so here, Nebuchadnezzar is talking about Daniel. And I want you to notice when Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylonian king, speaks of Daniel, do you notice he speaks about him very favorably? He speaks about him very, in fact, look at the next verse. He says this, I said, Belteshazzar, Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and there's no mystery that's too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. So you see, Nebuchadnezzar had a very, very favorable view of Daniel by Daniel chapter four. In fact, I even want you to notice the Bible's gonna say that Daniel 
was the chief of the magicians at this point. Now, the reason that's significant is, man, if you were, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, back in Daniel chapter two, uh, Daniel was just among the magi. He was just one of the wise men. Well, now he is the chief of them. In other words, he, he, he is heading up the whole project. Once again, I just want you to kind of understand, uh, Daniel, is, he's not one who is retaliating. He is not one who is uh, isolating. He is not one who is assimilating, but he is involved, and he is making a difference in Babylon. And so look what happens. The Bible says he has this dream. He has this dream. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and I'm going to kind of save some time, and I'm just going to kind of explain to you what the dream was. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, he says, I had this dream, and in this dream, there was this massive tree. And he says, and it was an impossible, impossibly big tree. It covered the whole earth. And he said, the canopy of this, this tree was so big that there was all kinds of leaves and there was all kinds of fruit within this tree. And he said, all of the animals on the earth found shelter under the tree. All the creatures of the earth found shelter under the tree. All the birds in the air were provided for in its branches. They house themselves in their branches. And he says, so yeah, I had this dream. There's this massive tree. And then he said, in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, there was this messenger who came from heaven. And this messenger proclaimed this announcement. And he said, chop the tree down, cut it down, and just leave the stump. And then Nebuchadnezzar goes on to explain his dream to Daniel. And in verse 15, I want you to notice what happens. He says that the, 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 he, the tree, the tree that he dreams of, becomes a he, which is super weird. But watch what happens. The tree becomes a he. Let him, talking about the tree, be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants on earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass by for him. So he has this weird dream about this tree. And then the announcer the messenger goes on and says this in his dream. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, uh, let, me, let me just say here real quick, if you're a person that takes notes or if you have a study Bible and you like to write notes in your study Bible, can I just encourage you to underline or highlight these words right here? The most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. I wanna encourage you to underline that or highlight that or make a note on that. And here's why. Did you know that these words right here are going to appear verbatim three times in chapter four? Three times. And then once again, they're gonna show up in chapter five. The same words are gonna show up. Now I've heard this said before, but I think it bears repeating. How many times does the Bible have to say something for it to be important? Once. So when something shows up three times, four times, that's worth noting. And what I want to show you is I believe in this section that the major theme is this. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And he sets over them the lowliest of people. What is the, what is the main theme? What is the main point of this section? I think it's right here. It is that the Most High is sovereign. He is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone that he wishes. What is it that God wants Nebuchadnezzar and us to learn? I think it's this. It's that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. So he goes on. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, also called Daniel, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, 
because the servant of the holy gods is in you. So Nebuchadnezzar knew there was something, uh, something special about Daniel. He said, can you interpret the dream for me? And so then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said to him, Belshazzar, do not let this dream or its meaning alarm you. So I want you to notice this. As, as Daniel is thinking about the meaning of the dream, the Bible tells us that his immediate response is that he is terrified. And then he is very alarmed by its interpretation. So clearly, and Nebuchadnezzar can read it all over his face, the meaning of the dream is not good. It's probably not going to be good news. Right? And Daniel knows that. Now, I want you to notice how Daniel speaks to the king, because I believe, you guys, I think this is very instructive for us. Look at what Daniel says to him. Belshazzar answered, Daniel answered him, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. So I want you just to stop here with me for a minute, because again, I think this is super valuable, very instructive to us, okay? How does Daniel illuminate in Babylon? How does he stand out? I think this is part of it. Do you notice how he responds to this king? Do you notice how he starts? Do you notice the humility? Do you notice the kindness in his tone? Daniel is fully aware that the message that he is about to deliver to this king is not good news, and you're gonna find out here in a second, but do you notice where he starts? He says, my lord, lowercase l, my lord, that was a way of showing respect to a king, if only this dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now listen, the reason this blows me away so much is because, well, if you've been with us in, in the past few chapters of Daniel, um, it's, probably, it's probably fair to say this. Do you guys think it's fair to say Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's relationship is probably, um, we can put it this way, complicated? Is that a good way to say it? So how many times has Nebuchadnezzar tried to kill Daniel now? Is it like two times? Is that right? Two, maybe something like that. He'll, he'll try to kill him again later. Like, so it's like, it's a little complicated, Right? Like there's been times that, that Nebuchadnezzar has threatened to kill Daniel and then Daniel has not compromised in his faith. But it, so it's been complicated. It's been complicated, right? And yet what I want you to notice is, do you notice that it really seems like Daniel has genuine care and concern for this king? Doesn't it seem like that? I mean, doesn't it seem like what you see here is empathy? Is that what you see? That, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure, Daniel didn't always agree with Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't always approve of what Nebuchadnezzar did or said. Of course not, for sure, we've seen that. But I think what we see here is that he's quick to empathize with him. He's quick to care for him. He's actually concerned about the guy. And you know what I think, you know what I think what it is that we see? I actually think what we see here is a living example of what God told his people of how he wanted them to live in exile back in Jeremiah chapter 29. In fact, if you're with us, we actually looked at this. This is a verse that God gave to his people before they went into exile of how they were to live. And this is what God said. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is how you should live. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, don't decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you to exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Not against, don't pray against it. Pray for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see what God says. He says, when you're in exile, I want you to shine. I don't want you to isolate. I don't want you to retaliate. I don't want you to assimilate. I want you to stand out. I want you to stand out. 
And I believe that the book of Daniel is just a living example of what we see here in Jeremiah 29. And part of how you see that play out is how Daniel speaks to the king. He, he shows empathy and he shows humility. But here's what I want you to notice. Even though Daniel speaks to the king with humility and with empathy and with grace, I want you to also notice he is equally full of truth because the message that he delivers to the king is not one that's super popular. And so look what he says to the king. This is what he goes on to say. Verse 22, your majesty, you're that tree. Remember that, remember that dream you had with the big tree? It was a big, awesome tree. Remember that? And then the messenger was like, cut it down. That's you. That's you, king. You have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty, in your dream, you saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the most high has issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like the ox, and you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until, here's again, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Once again, do you notice the message that he's delivering to this king is, a, is not, not an easy message. He says, king, you're that tree, and you're the tree that's gonna get chopped down, and God is going to cause you to essentially be driven away from people for a period of seven times, whatever that means, seven years potentially, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms and gives them to anyone that he wishes. And then he says this, this command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge, King, that heaven rules. Not Babylon, not Nebuchadnezzar, but heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Look, look what Daniel says. He says, so king, if I give you a little advice, if I could just give you some advice as an advisor to you, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be that your prosperity will continue. Man, I gotta tell you, this message, this message that he is giving is one that could be very offensive. This is not the way that most people would speak to a king of this magnitude. And yet, do you notice that when Daniel speaks to him, he is full of grace, he is full of humility, he is full of respect, but he is also full of truth. He never compromises the message that God wants for him to deliver to Nebuchadnezzar. Now again, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know that's not everybody, you guys think this is deeply instructive to us because the message that God has given to us to proclaim to the world is the message of the gospel. And that message, let's be honest, it is one that is to be spoken with grace and truth and it is a message, let's be honest, that to a society like ours is one that finds a lot of offense. There can be great effect. When we say that the message, what is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is that every single one of us is lost in our sins. And that it's only by turning from our sins and repenting from our sins and turning to God's means of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, that we can be put back into a right relationship with Christ. You guys, that message is one that is resoundingly offensive. To, to a society like ours. The exclusivity of that message, that we're saying that there's only one way to be connected back to God, that that's through Jesus Christ himself, that is a message that can oftentimes be very, very offensive. And I think what we see in Daniel 
And so Daniel speaks not in a vindictive, not in a spiteful, and not in an argumentative way. It's full of humility and it's full of grace, but it is also full of truth. So here's what happens. The Bible says all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, just like the dream said. But it happened, look at this, 12 months later, a whole year goes by before this takes place. So the Bible says a year later, the king was walking on the roof of the palace in Babylon. So he's walking on the royal palace, the hanging gardens there, right? And the Bible says that he said to himself, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So a year later, get this picture in your mind. Nebuchadnezzar is on top of the roof and he's walking around. He's probably looking at all the stuff that he made. He probably sees the Ishtar gate. He probably sees all the things that he created. And the Bible says that after looking at all of this, he breaks into this spontaneous speech. And apparently it is a self-addressed speech. And do you notice what the theme of the speech is? It's pretty evident. Right? This, uh, look at the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. In other words, what's the theme here? I'm, I'm pretty awesome. That's pretty much what it's, right? I'm kind of a big deal, is what he says when he looks around at all this stuff that he had created. You know, one of the things that you're going to know about Nebuchadnezzar, and you've already seen this if you've been with us in the series, is Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who is seriously, seriously full of himself seriously full of himself. And I got to tell you, this actually squares pretty well with what we know from history about Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, thought this was pretty cool. Uh, a friend of mine sent me this, uh, this link this past week, um, you know, read this Daniel series, and he sent me this link. I thought it was pretty cool. Archaeologists keep discovering these things they call Nebuchadnezzar bricks. I think this is so crazy. And so this is actually a picture of one. This one's from the British Royal Museum. You guys should go to the website and check it out. But there are um, thousands of these. And they have them in different museums around the world. But basically, it's a brick. And in the middle is an inscription. And do you know what the inscription says on the brick? It says this. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I? And so basically, the brick says, I'm, it's me. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. Every, every brick says, uh, I'm Nebuchadnezzar. It's my brick. This is my brick. And what's interesting is that um, they estimate, archaeologists estimate that there are over 50, it takes over 15 million bricks to build all of the temples and all of the different things that Nebuchadnezzar built. Most of the bricks carry this inscription on it. Why is that the case? Here's why. Historians believe that Nebuchadnezzar was so paranoid that he was either going to be forgotten in history or that someone was going to take credit for his work that he literally stamped on every brick, mine, mine, <laughs> mine. It's a dude who's seriously full of himself. Seriously. So he breaks into this speech. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my... I'd like to take this opportunity to thank myself for all that I've done. There's actually... This is kind of interesting. There's actually a name for this kind of speech. Commentators call, these, call this a hubris soliloquy. That's what they call it. It's kind of, fun, kind of fun to say. You guys want to give it a shot? I know you do. Turn to the person next to you and just say hubris soliloquy. Hubris soliloquy. You're like, what is that? What is a hubris soliloquy? Well, hubris, you guys know what hubris is, right? Hubris means like prideful, means like arrogant, like you're full of yourself. Soliloquy is like, you know, it's kind of like a monologue. So what is it? It's a prideful monologue. It's basically an I'm awesome speech addressed to myself. It's basically every rap song you've ever heard, right? That is a hubris soliloquy. That's what it is. 
And so he breaks into this. And whenever you see these in the Bible, which, by the way, you, you see them all throughout the Bible, it's never a good sign. It's never a good sign. Because, and in this case, it's not either, because look what happens next. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You're going to eat grass like an ox. Seven times are going to pass for you until you acknowledge once again that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. There it is again. What is the lesson that God is trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar and us? It is that the Most High is sovereign. He is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth. Now, this is probably a good spot for us to maybe give a little bit of clarity and definition to the word sovereignty. What exactly does it mean when the Bible says that God is sovereign? That, that of course, is a word that I'm guessing all of us are somewhat familiar with, right? Maybe, maybe you think of it as a churchy word. Uh, you hear that God is sovereign. Maybe for some of you, you think of it as a political word. So you think about like sovereign powers or sovereign governments. That might be a phrase that comes to your mind. But interestingly, in the Bible, the word sovereign, this comes from the Eaton Bible Dictionary, just means this. It's speaking of God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. What is God's sovereignty? It is his absolute right to do whatever he wants according to his good pleasure. That is what God's sovereignty is. Sometimes God's sovereignty is translated as his rule or his power. Sometimes it's translated as his authority. And can I just tell you guys, I think, I think that maybe for some of us, that the idea of sovereignty in itself, let alone God's sovereignty, is a difficult concept for us to grasp. I think the reason it's maybe so hard for us is, is because it's because we're Americans. A lot of us are Americans. Most of us are Americans. And, and there's so many awesome things that come with the kind of government system that we live in and, and the kind of place that we live in, for sure. There's so many awesome things that come with it. But I think one of the challenges that come is that it's really difficult for us to get our mind around something like this. God's absolute right to do things according to his own good pleasure. I don't think we're used to not having a say in things. The idea that, that we don't get to vote on who God is or who God isn't, that's a foreign idea to the way that we tend to operate. And yet the Bible is really clear that this is an element of who God is. It's his sovereignty. He is sovereign. He has the absolute right to do all things according. He's the creator of the universe. He has all the right, all the authority to do whatever he chooses to do for his own good pleasure. And I think that's what you see here. And so he's, he says to, to Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand something about who I am. You have to understand my sovereignty. Now, I want you to understand something as well. I want you to notice here in Daniel 4, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a whole year. He sees Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he sees his arrogance, and he gives him an entire year to repent. He gives him, and let's be honest, he gives him more than a year. He gives him four chapters of the book of Daniel to make a change in his life. But yet Daniel continue, or I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar continues to be full of himself and arrogant and proud. And so then you see what happens. And so eventually, God humbles him. And here's what it says. It says immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from the people and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird. Now, I don't know why, but every time I read this, I can't help but think of Keith Richards. That's what always comes to my mind. And if you don't know who that is, you should Google him. But that's what <laughs> comes up to my mind. But the Bible says he, he somehow loses his sanity and he starts to eat grass like an ox. I can't help but think of William Blake's famous painting. He has a painting that's a, 
uh, interpretation of this event. And um, you know, it's fascinating. Some commentators speculate that maybe uh, Nebuchadnezzar was struck with something called boanthropy. Boanthropy is actually a real psychological, rare, but real psychological condition where a person actually believes that they're an ox or they're a cow. And that's a real thing. You can look it up. And so Nebuchadnezzar is maybe the most famous historical example of that. But you see this take place. So that might have been the case. Maybe he had something like that. But either way, I don't want you to miss the point. I actually think there's a bigger point going on here. I think it's a deeper point. And I think what God is doing is he is using Nebuchadnezzar as an illustration of what happens to humanity when we become full of arrogance and we become full of pride. Listen, what happens when the leaders of this world become full of arrogance and full of pride? What happens when the people of this world become so intoxicated with arrogance and pride? I think what happens is that we start acting like animals, that, that rather than advancing as civilization and advancing in our sophistication, we actually become more animalistic in our impulses and the way that we interact with each other. I think that's what you see. The book of Genesis tells us that humanity was created and was intended to rule, was intended to lead over the world, just like you see with Nebuchadnezzar. But what happens when we are full of arrogance and pride and we seek autonomy from God? Well, I think what happens is that we start to act a lot more like animals rather than like the humans that we were created to be. So after this period of time, Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for apparently a period of seven times, whatever that means. And then it says this, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and I glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what is it that you have done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. So he's fully restored after this period of time. And look at this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. There it is. There is a king in heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And these are actually the last words that we have recorded from Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. When you get to chapter five, Daniel is no longer on the scene anymore. There's a new king. So interestingly, the question that a lot of people ask is, at the end of chapter four, does Nebuchadnezzar have a real and genuine conversion? Like, did he, really, did he really turn his life to God and become a God follower? Is that what happened to him? Or is this just like every other chapter where it looks like it ended well, but then he just reverts back to being the same old guy? And listen, I gotta tell you, we don't actually know because the Bible doesn't tell us and history doesn't really give us any indication of how Nebuchadnezzar finished his life out. Uh, but can I just tell you, I think that verses one, two, and three are actually very much worth our consideration. Remember I told you I wanna finish by looking at the first three verses. I want you to go back and look at verse one, two, and three with me again in Daniel chapter four. So look how he starts. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar. So remember, he's writing this. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing this. To the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. So do you notice King Nebuchadnezzar is writing this and do you notice who this letter is addressed to? Who is this addressed to? To the nations and the peoples of every language on the earth. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is writing an open letter to the world. 
He says, I want the whole world to know this. I want the whole world to know what happened to me. I want the whole, this is an open letter to all the nations and all the people on the earth. And you guys, how cool is it? How cool is it to think we actually got the letter? Like he wrote it to us 2,600 years ago on the other side of the world. We are reading it this morning, the letter that he wrote. So he, he writes to everyone, open letter to the world. And why is he writing it? What's the purpose of his writing? Look what he says. I want you to prosper greatly. May you prosper greatly. Now, I think this is cool. When we tend to think of prosper, a lot of times we think of prosperity. We think of material prosperity. We think, we think of financial prosperity. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar certainly knew a thing or two about that. But I, I actually believe when he says that he wants us to prosper greatly, he has a different kind of prosperity in mind. In fact, I think other translations make it very clear. I just want to show you. So this is the New American Standard Bible. It says it this way. May your peace abound. In the New Living Translation, it says, peace and prosperity be to you. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, it says, peace be multiplied to you. So what is the kind of prosperity that Nebuchadnezzar wants us to find? Is it the material, external prosperity? I don't think that's it. I think what he's talking about is an internal prosperity. I think he's talking about a peace. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar's saying. Get this. He says, I want to write the whole world. I want to let everyone know what happened to me because I want you to find peace. I want you to prosper greatly. Then look what he says next. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High has performed to me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Do you see how he starts this letter? He is about to tell us about the time that he was totally humiliated. He is about to tell us the time that God humbled him and that God taught him that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest people. He's about to tell probably of the most humiliating thing that ever happened to him in his life. And do you see what he says about that? He says, it's my pleasure to tell you this. My pleasure. You're like, my pleasure? You work at Chick-fil-A? Like, my, it's my pleasure. I can't. He says, I can't wait to tell you about how God humbled me. Think about that for a minute. Kings of this magnitude do not write their flaws into history. They omit them. Why is this king with his own hand saying, I am so excited to tell you about what God did in my life? I'll tell you why. It's because he knew and he saw that there was a cancer that was living inside of him. There was a deep pride and there was a deep arrogance. And the only way that he could truly find peace was to come to know the sovereignty of God. He says, I want you to know this peace too. I want you, can, can I tell you something else too? I think it's so, I think it's so instructive for us in this. Do you know, you know what I think? I think? I think one of the ways that you know that you've truly been transformed by the grace of God, I think one of the ways that you know that you've truly been transformed by the sovereignty of God is when you're no longer ashamed to tell your story. I, I think that's part of it. I think when you're in a place where you can say, warts and all, I am not ashamed to tell you about what God has done. Because I think you start to realize, when you understand God's sovereignty, you start to realize that God can even use our weakness to glorify himself and to help other people. And that's why I think Nebuchadnezzar says, I can't wait to tell you about what God has done to me because maybe you can find peace, the kind of peace that I have found. He owns the story. 
You know, I actually believe this. How cool is it that God uses this Babylonian king to write a chapter in the story of the real king, King Jesus? And I think, I think real peace comes, real peace comes when you stop trying to get God to write your story and you start to take part in his story, just like Nebuchadnezzar does here. So what do you do with a story like this? You know, what are, some, what are some ways that you can take this and ingest this into your life? Well, I just want to end with three very quick application points, and then we're done. So number one, I think, I think in light of what we read in Daniel chapter four, I think first off, we just need to take note. I think we need to take note. Specifically, I think we need to take cues from Daniel. And what do you see in the book of Daniel? What you see is you see unbelievable uncertainty. You see uncertainty in Babylon. It's always changing. You see uncertainty in this bipolar king, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, come on, let's face it. In Daniel 1 to 4, Nebuchadnezzar has more mood swings than Ohio weather. He is all over the place. He's up and he's down. He's up and, and it's all uncertain and it's all unpredictable. And yet in the book of Daniel, you see Daniel and his friends and they are just steady and they are just consistent and they are unflappable in their faithfulness. They don't, they don't check out, they don't freak out, they don't sell out but they stand out. And the question is, how in the world do they do that? And I think part of it is this. I think part of it is that you see that Daniel and his friends were resolved to trust God's sovereignty in times of uncertainty. How are they able to remain so consistent? It's because they knew that the Most High was sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he gave them to anyone he wishes. And can I just tell you that if you are a person who follows Christ, that there is great certainty that is found in this reality that God's sovereignty, is, he is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth. So whatever's happening in our culture, whatever's happening in our world, whatever's happening in our politics, whatever's happening in your life, no matter how uncertain, no matter how unpredictable, no matter how crazy it is, the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and he gives them to anyone that he wishes. That is a certain reality. And so we take note. You guys know that the idea of God's sovereignty, I believe is the primary theme in the book of Daniel. You can't go one chapter without seeing the fingerprints of the sovereign hand of God throughout the whole story in the book of Daniel. I'll just give you a quick sampling. The Bible's gonna tell us in chapter one, you know, the Israelites are defeated by the Babylonians, but it was the Lord who delivered them. The Bible's gonna tell us that it was God who caused the whole situation to happen. We're gonna be told that God is the one who gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar their wisdom God is the one who reveals the mysteries to Daniel. The God of the one is who gives dominion to Nebuchadnezzar and the kings. The God of heaven sets up a kingdom. The great God is the one who shows the kingdom what's gonna happen. God is the one who delivers people. So what you see is every page of scripture, the sovereign hand of God. So it appears like all this is happening, but God is behind the scenes, moving everything as he wishes. What's the point? The point is that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone that he wishes. So I think we take note. I think we also need to take heed. I think in light of the story that we just read, that there's caution for us. I think there's caution. You know, I think what this tells us is we need to be very careful to not put our trust or to fully hitch our wagon to any human authority whose power will inevitably fall and will inevitably fail. Listen to me, I think, I think what we see in the book of Daniel is this, is that there is no human leader, there is no human politician, there is no social influencer, there is no spiritual leader, there is no pastor that you should fully put your faith in because all humans will fail you. 
And I think what this is telling us is it's showing us that we should serve. We should serve the powerful people that we work for well. And we should serve the powerful people who serve us well, who lead us well. We should do that well. But we also have to be very careful. We have to always remember that they are not ultimate. No matter how they present themselves, no matter how they exalt themselves, there is no amount of money, there's no amount of power, there is no amount of influence or intelligence that can make somebody ultimate. And so do not be deceived. We are to take heed. I also would say we need to take heed in this. There are many people in this room who have a certain amount of power or authority. Maybe you're one of them. There's a certain amount of power or authority that you have at work, for example. Maybe for you, you have a certain amount of power or authority in your family or at your school or in whatever sphere it might be, big or small. I think that we should take caution. Read Daniel and, and take caution. We need to be aware that every, any ounce of authority or power that we have, no matter great or small, is given to us by God. It's given to us by God. And that means the power and influence are always, always, always a matter of stewardship. Do not be deceived. You cannot hold on to the power and authority that you've been given. It's as surely as it was taken from Nebuchadnezzar, it will be taken from you too. And so the question that we have to ask is, how do we steward that responsibly in a way that honors God? So we take note, we take heed. Lastly, I think we take heart. We take heart. Why? Because the certainty of God's sovereignty does not hang in the balance of any election or any battle or any breakthrough in technology or academic finding. His sovereignty is sure, and it's true. And with that, I'll ask the band to come up, and as they make their way up, I'll close us in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, I do just want to say thank you that you are sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and that you give them to anyone that you wish. And that is a, that is a truth that is uh, just, it's true about you. It's, it's a reality. And Father, it's a reality that brings to us, if we live in line with that reality, great humility. And so I ask you that even right now, you would help us to turn our hearts to you. Thank you, God, that you are a sovereign king, but you are a king that uses your power and uses your authority, not simply to domineer over us, but to serve us. We see that in what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. You are an unearthly king. You're not like anything that we've ever seen but you're a good king who loves us. Father, help us to find the great peace and the great comfort that comes in knowing that we can rest in your sovereignty, no matter how uncertain things might be in the world, no matter how uncertain things might be in our job, no matter how uncertain things might be in our life or in our families. We know that you're sovereign over all things, that we can trust you and that we can rest in your sovereignty. So I pray that as we have this time to worship and sing, that we cry out to you and that we'd be able to sing to you, our sovereign king, Pray in Jesus' name.